most of the images on Instagram that I see, even even the young bloggers, are talking about promoting a particular way of eating. I am going to start daily vlogging. It may be very healthy. Of what I eat every day, my exercise. Maybe eating clean, it may be eating vegan. Strawberries, apples, tomatoes, kiwis, oranges, grapes, spinach, avocado, pineapple. Not sure why, but I bought a butternut squash. Vegan vegetarian sausages. Uh, in terms of looking good, very much around the whole lifestyle. Motivation tips, just like, you know, my little rants and talks and things like that. And basically be able to just give you guys like daily inspiration. Because we all can get online and see what the celebrities are eating or what our favorite lifestyle blogger is eating, then that becomes additional influence on what we eat. With the help of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube, the online world has completely reshaped our relationship with food. One of the most notable changes is that these platforms have become cesspools full of so-called healthy food bloggers and vloggers. Everyday people with a remote interest in food have become online sensations, swarming up traffic by posting a picture with bountiful food options and attaching a hashtag, clean eating, healthy eating, clean eats. These people are idolized for their approach and dedication to healthy and ethical eating. But as these food celebrities flaunt their lifestyles online, Teresa Davis, an expert in food marketing from the University of Sydney, says it isolates just as many as it encourages. For one, I mean, I'm thinking of Rural populations, for instance, or regional young people who can't go into the supermarket and get their acai bowl or can't go into a cafe and get their smashed avocado. Many are struggling to afford basic food necessities, let alone the latest superfood or expensive organic alternative paraded by an online foodie. It seems like the online world consists of the urban, cosmopolitan, beautiful young person. And someone with disposable income. Exactly. And that, I think, is always an excluding kind of an image. Teresa explains while food and access to food has always been linked to social status and class. Oh, I mean, if you think about the Romans and the way they ate, they would literally eat and throw away golden plates. I mean, this was... Uh, they would eat the most expensive foods. They would eat foods from very far away. The divide between those who can afford these lifestyles and those who can't is becoming increasingly apparent. Being in the know and, you know, having that is sort of part of the class system, I think. The privilege and the means to acquire it and others don't. And that in itself is a class barrier. But when I make sushi rice, I put in some rice vinegar. So this is like one that doesn't have sugar or salt in it. And then just like a tiny bit of agave. Despite eating three meals a day and snacking on an endless amount of bananas, hunger became a serious problem throughout the week for me. This is Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. 
and this is part one of a series looking at the classism of the green movement, where on this episode, we unpack how the hunger of Australia's upper middle class is forcing vulnerable communities into food insecurity. With nearly 90% of the population living in towns and cities, Australia is one of the most urbanised countries in the world. This means that supermarkets and food outlets are disproportionately more frequent in metropolitan Australia than rural and regional communities, where, according to Sarah Wilkinson from the School of the Built Environment at the University of Technology, Sydney, these areas are not just where the mouths are, but where the money is. Because we have just a couple of supermarkets that have got such a dominant hold on the bulk of the market, it's very hard to break their business model with their economies of scales, their distribution networks, and what they actually make available to us. Sarah notes that while much of the produce on the shelves of metro supermarkets comes from rural producers, these communities ultimately end up with the short end of the stick, as their produce heads out to the cities first, only to come back in much poorer condition. To transport food back to the rural communities is very time-consuming. The quality of the food is not the best, and it's also very expensive. They end up paying a premium, even though, ironically, the food they're eating may be grown very close to where they actually live. Supermarket retailers seeing little financial benefit in building somewhere out of the metro means there may end up being fewer or no places for people to go to buy fresh fruit and vegetables. And if there's nowhere around for you to get the food you need, Tanya Lawless, assistant professor in dietetics from the University of Canberra, says, you travel, you drive, if you have a car, but then there's the cost of petrol or you get public transport, and that's only if there's a train station or bus stop close by. The distance in getting to services that provide free food or cheaper food or even just getting to the supermarkets and the cost of getting there, you know, that bus fare you mentioned before can be quite expensive. Or even just if they have to walk, trying to walk with bags of groceries in an Australian summer, you know, the difficulties in doing that. But Tanya says there's also the issue of once you get there, what food is on offer? If there are no supermarkets within travelling distance and your only option is the corner store that may sell food staples like rice and bread but not fresh fruit and veg, the lack of food on offer also means a lack in nutrition. And it's easy to get access to those foods that are highly processed and therefore have high salt, sugar and fats and don't provide those nutrients. Food marketing expert Teresa Davis explains that's why, in many cases, junk foods, as well as fast food chains and restaurants, are the only option. I, I'm the first one to advocate against eating junk food for so many reasons. At the same time, one must recognise that junk food is, for one, the cheapest food available. And when you're talking about people who are uh, in food distress, junk food may be a way of coping. Some of the studies we've seen looking at how poor families cope, a parent said if she can buy frozen whole pizzas, cut it up into pieces, and wrap up the individual pieces and put it in the 
freezer for her children to eat after slice by slice after they come home from school she felt she had done her done her best and that was because she didn't have the money to spend on the smashed avocado breakfast or asparagus at dinner so i mean that's that's something we need to recognize there are structural disadvantages that mean a whole lot of the world can't eat healthily These structural disadvantages are what push some of Australia's most vulnerable communities even further into food distress. Tanya Lawless from the University of Canberra has been researching the factors that contribute to food insecurity for resettled refugees and says not only do these communities encounter the issues of food cost and access even more so than the general population, in establishing an income and familiarizing themselves with the area to which they've been resettled. But they also face unique pressures that come with resettling to another country. Particularly for refugees is getting, I guess what I'd call traditional food, food that you've been brought up on and trying to understand and know how to cook and know foods here in Australia are equivalent to foods that you might have had back at home. Camel meat might be something that they consume a lot of and we don't have access to camel meat a lot. So substituting that for something that's nutritionally equivalent, maybe something like lamb. Another issue is with labelling and whether or not someone who, for instance, may follow a halal diet would have proficient English skills to discern between whether a product is or isn't halal. These factors around labelling, Tanya says, is what deters many away from cooking and looking to fast food options. Because the food's already prepared for them, because they may have come to Australia, their partner or their family may have done the cooking at home, so they don't know how to cook themselves, and they're relying on other people to do that food preparation for them. And then that creates a risk in buying those takeaway foods or, or fast foods, because it's quicker, it's easier, and they don't know how to cook. There's an additional pressure looming over some of Australia's most food distressed. A stigma. A stigma that labels those who eat junk food, who go to fast food restaurants, those who take their families to McDonald's for dinner, as uneducated, as lazy, as unhealthy, and that they bring it on themselves. When in fact, these communities are being denounced by the very people who built the system that put them there in the first place. So then you have the mother, you know, trying to cope with frozen pizza. She's doing the best she can, and we have to admire what, you know, what they're doing with the, with what they have. So I think that's, that's, that's the kind of disparities we do have now. Tanya says this idea was particularly prevalent in another research project she worked on interviewing a number of women from the ACT who were food insecure. I interviewed 41 women here in the ACT and I just sat down with them and got them to tell me their story about how difficult it was to to access food. The women that I interviewed ranged from 19 years right up to 70 years and the reasons why they were in this circumstance varied from escaping domestic violence to a partner dying and leaving them with lots of debt. 
and so they had to sell up everything and now found themselves in this situation. Everyone thinks that those who are food insecure, a low income, uh, you know, really don't have any motivation and are really sort of there to take advantage of the system. But the women that I spoke to didn't ask to be in this situation. They were trying really hard to get out of that situation. Over half of them, or maybe closer to three quarters, had year 10 or above education level. And nine of the women actually were university educated. The women you and I, I'm sure the, the refugee people know as well, they know what to eat to maintain their health. But sometimes that, that choice is taken out of their control. Some food sometimes is better than no food at all. In the meantime, metro populations have the money and time to engage in new food opportunities. The rise of alternative food markets like food box schemes, where a pre-organised mix of organic meats, fruits and vegetables can be delivered to your doorstep. To farmers markets, where produce is sold in person directly from suppliers, who usually travel to sell in urban hotspots. These alternatives give these populations not just access to more food, but a greater range of choice. Matt Daly from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology Sydney says people may partake in these markets not just to buy organic, but to detach from traditional retailers and engage in a food system that carries a lighter environmental footprint. You go into Woolworths, say, or, or Coles, and the organic food section is often wrapped in layers and layers of plastic compared to the other food, so you're getting a environmental win by buying organically, but you're getting up with all this extra plastic packaging, which is kind of perverse. That's not to say these markets or programs only operate in Metro Australia, but those working outside these areas are usually led by different motivations. Food programs run by local groups, churches and councils setting up co-ops and pantries are typically focused on helping those in need rather than protecting the planet. When you're hungry... You need to eat, you know, because you feel better. It gives you the motivation to, you know, apply for that job or to try and improve your situation. Food plays a big part in that. The weight of lifting vulnerable communities out of food distress, for the most part, falls onto these local groups and initiatives, many having little money behind them and others operating not just out of goodwill but out of their own pockets. And with population growth and urbanisation pushing these communities further out and away from metro areas, away from these programs, greengrocers and supermarkets, Tanya Lawless says the problem may only get worse, given Australia has no national policy in place to address food security. Do other countries have a national food security policy? Yes, some have policies in effect. Some look at food security in a lot more detail. Canada and the US would look at food security a lot better than what we do here in Australia. We have ad hoc surveys every couple of years or every five years or, or whatever. And then you have different organisations or universities doing little studies to see what percentage of people who are food insecure in those areas. So there's no one area that's collecting all of the, the information across Australia at the moment. And that's one of our problems 
A strong national policy, Tanya believes, would identify not only the communities most at risk, but bring together all the players who have stakes in this insecurity. Governments, industry, retailers, food charities, the transport sector, recognising they're not removed from one another, and that letting them operate in isolation exacerbates the problem. If a supermarket is built in a regional town, is there an adequate public transport system to help those who don't drive get to the food they need? If a food charity is under the pump because more and more people are relying on them to eat, are there other parties or even government interventions that could assist? With no national policy to join the dots, these problems remain unresolved. And two, let the biggest supermarkets in the country continue to monopolise what we can and can't eat. Retailers, food retailers, have huge amounts of power in the system. Teresa Davis again. They decide what the farmers grow, what kinds of foods are used, and uh, what kinds of foods are sold in the supermarket. So it's really a question of uh, tipping that balance somehow. And I think governments have a definite role to play in this. From your side, what do you think prompts that? Prompts governments? I think governments find it too convenient to go along with business right now, especially groups like the sugar lobby, for instance. You have vested interest in all of this. I mean, there is no doubt about it. Big business does not see that money comes from fresh food right now, so they don't they don't care. I mean, it's easy to sell cheap processed food, and um, that's what they'll do until we give them a reason to do otherwise. and welcome back to my channel. In this video, I'm gonna be showing you what I eat in a day. I love to eat and I also love to watch these videos on YouTube, so I figured it was time to try out one myself, so. Have you seen across any of the research that you've done, either with vulnerable women or resettled refugees, how a social media food culture that we're engaged in today, one of showcasing good eating, healthy lifestyles, fitness, does that, trickle into anyone's own anxieties or personal insecurities when it comes to their food relationships? Do you know, I think, and I'm going to talk more about the vulnerable women to uh, respond to this, if that's okay. Tanya Lawless. All the women I spoke to knew that they needed to eat these foods and they wanted to provide these healthy foods for their children. So they can change that sort of culture in terms of their child knows these foods are, are good to eat and continue going along that pathway. Sometimes seeing that social media stuff but not being able to afford a healthy diet all the time was quite distressing for these women and they really felt down about not being able to eat the foods that they'd like to eat and the impact that that was having on their health. And some of the women did mention that it increases that feeling of, of being inadequate and disappointment in oneself because you couldn't 
get access to that healthy food or make sure that you do eat as healthy as what you would like to. You open up your phone and it's continually reinforcing. Yeah. And spread some hummus on there. So now I have a little bit of hummus on there. This is going to add some protein and fiber, which is going to help keep me full and also just adds a lot of flavor. I love hummus. And I'm just going to take some of this arugula and sprinkle this on here. Just enough. Not too much. I'm just gonna squash that down a little bit. And then we're gonna throw the chicken. So now we've got our chicken on there. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and it's heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. This show is made in the 2SER studios, based in Sydney, on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on iTunes. Just search for Think Sustainability. Next week is part two of our series, looking at the classism of the environmental movement. It's called Colonial Green Spaces. I'm Jake Morecambe. Catch you next time.